COVID-19 in nursing homes continues to drive the death toll upward. Congress passes another tranche of COVID-19 relief, but for whom? And Trump responds to it all by suspending new green cards? This is America Dissected, and I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Congress just passed an additional $480 billion interim package. It adds another $320 billion to the Paycheck Prevention Program and funnels some of the small business loan money through smaller banks. An additional $75 billion is earmarked for relief for hospitals, many of which are currently facing bankruptcy as they battle both COVID-19 and revenue slashed because of the reductions in elective procedures that are the lifeblood of most hospitals. And then, like an afterthought, there's a little left over for the most important, most critical, most pressing, and most lacking aspect of our federal COVID-19 response. We're nowhere near where we need to be on testing. There needs to be more testing infrastructure, more test kits, uh, more capacity to test. And I don't think you're going to find a governor in the United States who feels differently about that. When you get out into the, into the field for the people who are actually going to do the swabbing, many times they don't have the swab. We still need assistance with testing supplies and personal protective equipment. We have the capacity to double or triple the number of tests that we are doing, but we need some of these supplies. That's right, the all-important testing. The package includes $25 billion for testing, which, to be clear, sounds like a lot of money, but is woefully inadequate to reach the scale of the requirements, either now or for the future. The test kit includes a number of smaller parts, things like reagents and swabs, and those things can't be sourced without federal coordination. As New York Governor Andrew Cuomo puts it, The federal government cannot wipe their hands of this and say, oh, the states are responsible for testing. I don't do China relations, I don't do international supply chain, and that's where the federal government can help. To his credit, Trump has finally used his Defense Production Act authorities for the testing swabs that were holding up testing capacities at scale. But that doesn't change the fact that we just need more testing. A lot more testing. But what's also missing from this package? First, there's no support for states and municipalities. As a former city health official, I got to work with some of the most committed, most selfless, and most inspired public employees in the world. And because of COVID-19, they're facing furloughs or outright layoffs in the middle of a damn pandemic. Those people won't just suffer because of this, but the people they serve every day in the city will too. Also MIA is support for everyday Americans in the form of rent relief or hazard pay or more direct support for Americans who are struggling right now. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez put it this way. Hospital workers do not have protective equipment. We don't have the necessary ventilators. And, but we have to go into this vote, eyes wide open. What did the Senate majority fight for? One of the largest corporate bailouts with as few strings as possible in American history. Shameful. The greed of that fight is wrong for crumbs for our families. And the option that we have is to either let them suffer with nothing or to allow this greed and billions of dollars, which will be leveraged into trillions of dollars to contribute to the largest income inequality gap in our future. There should be shame about what was fought for in this bill. And then, of course, there's no support for actual health care in the middle of a health care crisis. Unemployment numbers are nearing an all-time high. More than 26.4 million people have filed for unemployment. In addition to the millions who lacked health care before the pandemic, millions more will lose health care now. And while some employers are doing all they can to keep workers on insurance benefits 
and some insurers are waiving out-of-pocket costs, this pandemic has exposed one of the deepest wells of insecurity in our society, our healthcare system. While many have advocated for COVID-19 testing and treatment to be affordable, one has to ask, why wouldn't it just be free? And even beyond COVID-19, it's not like all the other diseases, the heart attacks and broken bones and appendicitis have just gone away. People still need care for those things too. Why shouldn't they be free? That's the question my guest today has been asking his entire career. He's made the fight for universal government health insurance a hallmark of his political career. He's the reason why Medicare for All is even on the map and is someone I've looked up to since the first time I heard him speak. Hey, Abdul. Hey, Senator. How are you? I am great. That's right. We'll be talking to Senator Bernie Sanders after the break. Just as a matter of disclosure, I did endorse him for president this primary, just as he endorsed me when I ran for governor. Joining us today is a very special guest, somebody I've looked up to uh, for a very long time and who has inspired millions, built the public conversation that we are sharing right now about where we ought to go with health care. And that's Senator Bernie Sanders. Senator, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Well, Bill, thank you so much uh, for having me uh, on the podcast. And thank you for all the great work you've been doing on this coronavirus and fighting for Medicare for all. You know, this moment has in so many ways, demonstrated just how fragile our for-profit healthcare system is. And I know that you hear from people all over the country all the time. And can you talk a little bit about how this pandemic is uh, is hitting folks and what the world might look like if we had Medicare for all instead of what we have right now? The American people understand that our healthcare system is wasteful, it's expensive, it's dysfunctional, it's cruel. They have known that for a long time and increasingly understand that. But right now, because of the economic collapse, where as of today, some 26 million people have officially lost their jobs and applied for unemployment compensation, the number is actually greater than that. Mm. The reality is that when many of these millions of people are losing their jobs, they're losing their health care also. Because under our system, for many people, health care is an employee benefit, not a human right. Mm. So as the economy collapses and people lose their jobs, they're losing their health care. And what that means is that people now increasingly understand that we have got to move to a Medicare for all single payer system, which means that whether you're employed, whether you're unemployed, whether you're young, whether you're old, you are entitled to health care because you are a human being. And it would have changed so much about the experience that um, that people are having right now. You talked about people losing their, uh, their, their jobs and therefore losing their health care because, you know, we think about this as a benefit, not a right. Um, but you also look at the fragility of, of hospitals, right? You've got doctors who I talk to every day, and they're struggling without PPE. Can you, can you speak to um, how we would have been able to support them? It's not just the, the protective uh, equipment that our doctors and nurses need. It also has to do with the fact that, unbelievably, in the midst of this crisis, you've got millions of people who can't go to a doctor because they can't afford to go to the doctor. Mm. Under normal circumstances, we lose thirty to 60,000 people a year because they don't go to a doctor when they should. And right now, somebody has the symptoms of COVID-19. 
you know, I have a fever, I'm coughing, whatever it may be. I can't afford to go to the doctor. Insane. Totally insane. And on top of all of that, what you're seeing in hospital after hospital, because elective surgery and procedures are now being postponed, they're running out of money. How do, are we in a moment where we're in the worst healthcare crisis in modern history and doctors and nurses are being laid off and hospitals are on the verge of bankruptcy? It is, it's devastating to watch. And, you know, you're absolutely right. You can imagine a, a hospital, right, when it's in, in its time of greatest need and, and, and greatest responsibility, now has to worry about fighting the, the bankruptcy uh, that is imminent and fighting COVID-19. In fact, we just had a hospital in, in Michigan uh, basically lay off something like 2,500 staff in the middle of this pandemic. It, middle of a crisis. And you're like, you, you, you mean to tell me that those folks aren't needed right now? Um, but it's just that they can't be paid for. They need it more than ever. Exactly. It's exactly. like being in the middle of a war and, and, you know, withdrawing your troops because you can't afford to pay them. That's, that's, that's exactly right. I, I want to I ask you, uh, you know, as you've been working on this issue for a, a very long time, and, you know, because of your leadership, Medicare for All is something that is on the national consciousness. It's a, it's a household, uh, household idea. Um, you know, a lot of folks look to your campaigns uh, over the last five years as uh, where they went to be a part of the fight for Medicare for All. Um, where do you see that fight going from here? What our campaigns have managed to do is that as a candidate, I was given by the media a spotlight. They couldn't help it. And I was able to talk about the issue. Mm-hmm. And you ask people, you go up there, and you say to people, do you think it makes any sense at all that we are spending twice as much per person on health care as with the people of any other country? And 87 million are uninsured. Our health care outcomes in terms of our life expectancy, infant mortality are not particularly good. People say, of course not. This is crazy. Should the function of healthcare be to make huge profits for the drug companies and the insurance companies? No, it should not. So you're asking, where do we go from here? And I think what we have got to do, and we have been weak in this area, but we need to put together a healthcare movement in this country, which tells all candidates, Democrats and Republicans, you know what? We're sick and tired of the cruelty and dysfunctionality and the waste in this system. Healthcare is a human right for all of our people. And we have to underline the fact we are the only nation on major nation that doesn't guarantee healthcare at all. Are you, I, I, I am 50 miles away from the Canadian border here. Me too. I'm in Michigan. I'm uh, Southeast Michigan. Yeah. All right. So both of us, ironically, are a few miles away from the Canadian border and somehow spending about half as much per capita. They managed to provide healthcare to all of their people uh, and have prescription drugs that are substantially more affordable. How does that happen? That's the question that we have got to keep pounding away at. And I think if we bring our people together, we're going to win this. And let's be very clear about it. The only source of opposition is the healthcare industry, drug companies, insurance companies, etc., who made over $100 billion in profits last year. They want to maintain this dysfunctional system to continue their profits We've got to take them on, and if we well organize well, we will win this fight. Yeah, I, I believe that too. Um, one of the things that flabbergasts me is um, that you know opponents of Medicare for all seem to want to point to other countries, namely Italy, 
to make the argument that somehow Medicare for All wouldn't have handled this pandemic better. What's your response to that? Uh, my response is that is nonsense. Uh, that you have countries like Taiwan, which has a single payer system, which have done very, very well. Uh, and look, uh, and, and countries around the world that have been better positioned to respond to this crisis. This is a horrible, horrible sickness. You know this better than I. And there's no country on earth has done all that they should have done. But common sense suggests that in America, we don't even have a system. We have a Byzantine uh, collection of healthcare uh, components, uh, not well organized at all, not prepared to deal with a pandemic or virtually anything uh, else. So I, I reject that argument can point, I think, to countries that have actually done a fairly good job. Yeah. The, the other part of this this point that I, I always like to like to bring up is just that, you know, in no other circumstance in the world have we ever compared ourselves to Italy. Because, like, if people want to compare our healthcare system to Italy, I'd say, fine, fine, I'm fine with that, as long as you're willing to then draw down our military so that it's the size of Italy's. Like, if you want to do that, then, then I'm okay with it. But, you know, unless we're willing to compare apples to apples, then it doesn't really make sense to me. And at the same time, these folks will also point to the poor in our country and say, look, we, we do everything better than everyone else. I'm like, good. If you want to bring that bravado forward, then we should be doing a national health care program better than everyone else. You are aware. You go to Europe, for example. The most conservative people, the most conservative party is well, right now. The guy who's head of, you know, Boris Johnson is the head of the is the prime minister in the UK conservative? Yeah. None of these people will tell you that they want to go to the American model. That's in right. fact, you know, Boris Johnson is talking, whether he tells the truth or not, I don't know, talking about strengthening the National Health Service there. The most conservative parties all over Europe, in those parties, nobody believes that health care is not a human right. We are the exception to that rule internationally. Yeah, and I bet uh, Boris Johnson, particularly right now, is pretty thankful for the NHS, right? He got some great care out there. On on the other side of it, this coronavirus pandemic um, has very much transcended healthcare. It has demonstrated what I think is a fundamental vulnerability that we have had on the economic front for a very long time. And um, we're seeing people being forced between uh, keeping their livelihoods, working, you know, $11 an hour jobs that are you know all of a sudden deemed essential when you know for a long time we've we've deemed these people expendable or or staying home and saving lives a lot of your work has been about economic security uh, and in a, in a lot of ways you, you come to Medicare for all from the position of, of economic security can you speak to um, what we should have done if we wanted to be able to survive something like this and people could come out of this knowing that they were going to be whole well you know your point is well taken that suddenly, we are very, very grateful for the EMT workers, for the ambulance drivers, the cops, for the firemen, for the truck drivers, grocery store clerks, for literally putting their lives on the line. Just felt, felt with some people in the post office. We've lost dozens of postal workers mm. as a result of this crisis. That's number one. And, and, but number two, interestingly enough, is, as you well know, we're seeing much higher death rates from the illness in the African-American community and among poor people mm -hmm. because they have not, A, gotten the health care they need historically and throughout their lives. Uh, and, and they are, have the pre-existing conditions 
whether it is diabetes, whether it, it is high blood pressure, uh, whether it is uh, obesity, whether it is stress in general, uh, and, and a number of other illnesses which have lowered their uh, ability to be immune or fight back against this disease. And we're seeing terrible numbers uh, in the African-American community, much higher than the white community, because of all of the illnesses that people are, are living with and are now falling prey uh, to the, the virus. That makes sense. You understand that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what's going on. Uh, so I think when we look at the current moment, we are asking ourselves, how does it happen that so many of our people are living in economic desperation? You know, the grocery store clerks out there they don't see themselves necessarily as heroes. They see themselves as somebody that's go out and earn the eight or ten dollars an hour that they make because they got to feed their families. Yeah. So I think when we look at this crisis, it really points out not only to the dysfunctionality of our healthcare system, but the gross inequality and unfairness of the economy today, where half of our people are living paycheck to paycheck where millions of people are living in dire poverty. And you talk about who's getting sick. Well, if you're crowded into a, an apartment house where a whole lot of people are living together and one person gets the virus, you know what? Others are going to get it as well. That's right. We have a deplorable housing situation. Now, on and on it goes. So I think what the crisis has done, Abdul, uh, in my judgment, it is kind of magnified, put a searchlight, if you like, a spotlight, on just all of the inequities in the current uh, economy and system that we live under. My um, my friend Corey uh, is a gentleman who we interviewed last episode, and uh, he was reflecting on his experience. He and his dad both had COVID-19, and um, he's uh, African-American and, and works in, in social services. And he used a word that I think is just is fundamental here that that I think you're uh, really touching on as well. It's the idea of trust. And he basically said, look, if you want to understand disparities, ask yourself why, if you're black in this country, you would trust the authority to both provide for you and or to give you the information that you need to thrive. And so much of what you're talking about is the fact that like, you know, uh, so many of uh, of our black and brown sisters and brothers in this country just have not been able to trust the system to provide them the basic means of a dignified life. And and here we are, right? When the wind blows, the house of cards falls, um, and folks are finding themselves just fundamentally vulnerable because of choices that we've made. Absolutely. I mean, this, I mean, I just say two things about this. Number one, again, this unprecedented disaster from a healthcare and economic point of view where we are today exposes in, in a profoundly painful way the inequities in our uh, society. Uh, At the same time, I would hope that in the midst of all of this pain and all of this death and illness, that maybe the American people begin to think that we need a very different way forward. We need very different uh, economic and healthcare structures in our society that provide a decent standard of living for all of our people, not just the massive levels of income and wealth inequality that we see today. Yeah. I, um, you know, on, on that front, um, we just saw the Senate just passed a, another tranche of, of a package, uh, focused on relief. And, um, you know, it was really focused on 
refilling the Paycheck Protection Program, and it added you know some some funding for uh, hospitals and a little bit for testing. You know, you've been a champion, of course, for a, a far more broad-shouldered approach to this. Can you speak to what's what's missing and what the prospects are to being able to get there? We are going to, and I literally just cut off the phone a few minutes ago. We are working extremely hard, and I, I, I want the American people to know that, that some of us are more than aware of this horrific crisis facing the people of our country, especially working people and low-income people. And we are working as hard as we can to try to address uh, this crisis both from a healthcare point of view and from an economic point of view. From an economic point of view, what we are working on uh, is the following. Uh, I think we should emulate what a number of European countries are doing, as well as what we did in the last major bill, the Corona three bill, which provided a continuation of paychecks for 2 million workers in the airline industry. In other words, if you work in the airline industry, which has been devastated by this crisis, you're a worker, you're a flight attendant, you're a pilot, uh, you're a gate attendant, whatever you may be, you are going to continue to get the same paycheck and health benefits that you received before the crisis. To my mind, and European countries are often doing the same thing. To my mind, that is the simplest, uh, most easily administered concept to get money into the hands of working people. Mm -hmm. Second thing is, you and I are advocates for Medicare for all. During this crisis, at the very least, very least what I want to see is that all Americans have all of the health care that they need without out-of-pocket expense. Mm-hmm. That means if you have private insurance, that's fine. We're not taking it away. We're not changing it. But if you have deductibles and co-payments, you can't afford your prescription drugs, Medicare will come in and fill those gaps. If you're uninsured, Medicare will provide uh, the insurance coverage that you need. That's what we need during the emergency. Thirdly, uh, I want to make sure we provided $1,200 uh, for every adult in the country, or met most adults in the country, 500 bucks for kids. I want to see us do $2,000 a month. So many other issues out there, but those are some of the provisions uh, some of us are fighting for in the next bill, the Corona 4 bill. Mm, I uh, I deeply appreciate that. I Another one that's really near uh, to my heart is, you know, I started my, my life in government at the city level, um, and I'm watching uh, a lot of the folks that I used to work with as a colleague either get furloughed or potentially laid off because the, the city's not going to make ends meet. And of course, uh, city and state governments can't run deficits. Do, do you see a, a future where we're, we're bailing out some of these state and local governments, particularly considering that, you know, so much of the, the response has been left to them? Right. I mean, at a time when police officers and EMT people and ambulance drivers are coming down with the coronavirus, when mm. cities... Uh, are under great stress. Uh, I think the Detroit uh, police chief had the coronavirus, right? That's right. Is what I, yeah, I mean, uh, we have got to protect uh, the cities and the states in this country. So we have put some money in. Uh, I think everybody recognizes that as soon as we possibly can get a new Corona 4 bill, uh, cities and, and towns uh, will get the support that they desperately need. 
I appreciate that. And uh, just lastly, before we go, I know a lot of our listeners um, are just looking to you for continued leadership. You know, what's your advice to to those of us who who you know are continuing on in this work together with you and, and so many others? What's your advice to us, particularly considering just we're in some pretty dark times? And this is what I would say. This is something very profound. I think everybody understands it. Uh, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. talked about the arc of history and, and, and the movement of a civilized society toward justice. But struggle is not easy. And real change doesn't take place overnight. And it's important that we all understand that. I think sometimes maybe younger people don't. People have put their lives on the line and they are sometimes died in the struggle for workers' rights, in the struggle for women's rights, in the struggle for civil rights, uh, in the struggle for gay rights. You know, so all of the major uh, achievements that we have seen in this country over the last hundred plus years, people fought and died year after year after year. These things don't come easily. But you're taking on very powerful, incredibly powerful special interests. But with the healthcare industry, the drug companies, they have unlimited sums of money to buy and sell politicians to put ads on television to protect their interests. You know, whether it's the fast food industry or Walmart, where people get rich while they're paying their workers 10, 11, 12 bucks an hour. It is not any easy struggle. So I think where we are right now is at a moment where it is clear to me that Donald Trump is the most dangerous president in the modern history of this country for 50 different reasons that we don't have the time to get into. He has got to be defeated. Mm. And at the same time, we have got to push Joe Biden in as a progressive direction as we can, something I'm working on very, very hard. But after the election, the day after the election, the struggle continues for health care for all, for an economy that treats workers with the respect and dignity that they require, that they must have as human beings, that we deal with climate change, that we deal with immigration reform, criminal justice reforms, all of the issues that are on the minds of the American people. So, uh, you know, my suggestion is, my, my strong belief is, as somebody who has seven grandchildren, Despair is not an option. We can't turn our backs, no matter how depressed we may become, how upset we may become. This struggle has gone on for hundreds of years. And all of us who are alive right now in these very, very dark moments, we've got to stand up, we've got to fight back, and make sure that we keep our eyes on the prize, which is creating a nation which leads the world in a society based on justice and fairness not greed and deception. Well, Senator Bernie Sanders, I deeply, deeply appreciate your leadership in that respect. It's been uh, an honor of a lifetime uh, working with you, and I know we're going to continue to work together, and I hope that we will continue to to watch your leadership on the national stage and uh, hope that uh, we can fight right alongside you. So thank you for, for joining us today, and thank you for that clarity around uh, the role of Medicare for All, the what we need to do to respond to the economic insecurity that this has framed upon a lot of people and, um, and you know, announce a hope in what has been a really challenging time. Uh, Senator, I really, really appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Talk soon. As usual, I want to tell you what I'm watching right now. Driven by astroturfed, coordinated efforts by right-wing groups, we've watched, quote-unquote, protests pop up around the country 
about how long to continue social distancing. These protests have no doubt helped encourage a number of plans to reopen businesses in southern states like Georgia and South Carolina. To be sure, I think these plans are premature and will absolutely put people at risk. And if you live in one of those states and you can do it, stay home anyway. But then there's this, which takes irresponsibility to a whole new low, from Mayor Marilyn Goodman of Las Vegas, a city undoubtedly hit extremely hard by the pandemic. You're, I mean, you're talking about encouraging hundreds of thousands of people to come to Las Vegas. Bad. I get the, the financial yeah. losses people are suffering, which is awful. But you're encouraging, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people coming there in casinos, smoking, drinking, touching slot machines, breathing circulated air, and then returning home to states around America and countries around the world. Doesn't that sound like a virus Petri dish? I mean, how is that? No, what it sounds like you're being an alarmist. I'm not. I've lived a long life. I grew up in the heart of Manhattan. I know what it's like to be with subways and on buses and crammed into elevators. I think you are by saying what you have just said. So you don't believe there should be any social distancing? You don't believe that this is Of course I believe there should be. Of course. I'm a How do you do that in a casino? That's up to them to figure out. Sorry, but that's just crazy. I understand how devastating these stay-at-home orders can be for a city like Las Vegas, whose economy relies so heavily on services and entertainment, but there is no way around COVID-19. We just have to get through this. Next week, we've got another special guest coming on, and I want to hear from you. We'll have Andrew Yang on to talk about the $1,200 checks and universal basic income more generally. We want to know how you're spending your check. Email me a voice memo at americadissected at crooked.com, and you might just hear your own voice with Andrew Yang. That's all for today. But if you'd like to support organizations leading the fight to support our most vulnerable during this pandemic, donate to Crooked Media's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com slash coronavirus. I'll see you on Tuesday with another update. And to those observing, Ramadan Mubarak. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. David Hoffman is our senior producer. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra and Sydney Rapp. The theme song is by Takaya Suzawa and Alex Uguiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geisman. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. Thanks for listening.